do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Some of us are already in the thick of this fight. Some of us are just joining the melee. Some of us have already been struck down in battle. It's Friday, the 3rd of April, and this is the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. So thank you for joining us once again. This is another coronavirus special, saving lives and the end of life. My name is Neil Tucker, and I'll be walking you through the next 20 minutes or so of this podcast. And just like last week, what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at what we've learned over the last week about coronavirus. And then we're going to have a look at end of life care for COVID patients in the community. I've realised that things have been changing so fast over the past few weeks that if you are listening to this podcast several weeks after it's been recorded, then please, please, please consider it as a historical reference point during this pandemic rather than any semblance of definitive guidance. So things are getting pretty dire in the Tucker household now. We're all fine. No one's got coronavirus, but the cleaner hasn't been for four weeks now. The place is absolutely filthy. Everything has a layer of fuzz all over it. And every time I move, a cloud of dust makes me start coughing and I start wondering if I need to be self-isolating. The kids learning from home is not going great, I'll be honest. The only thing they've learned is how to find Netflix on the TV. And we all need a haircut. So this weekend, myself and the boys have a date with my wife, a bowl and the kitchen scissors, which is not going to look pretty. Meanwhile, big thank you once again to everyone who's messaged me over the last week. So uh, apologies if I haven't been able to return your emails. I've tried to answer as many of the questions as I've been able to. Apologies if I haven't got round to it just yet. It's been a very busy week with both work and hot topics. We're currently putting together a free on-demand webinar, COVID clinical features, and severity assessment, when to try antibiotics, when to admit, how to manage people with complex comorbidities, how to manage end-of-life care. And that should be on the website at the end of next week, so hopefully in time for the Easter weekend. Now, today in What's New, we're going to have a chat about the clinical features, including the ones that you guys have been very kindly sharing with me over the last week. We're a week further on. We've got a week's more experience now of coronavirus. It continues to be important to share these primary care experiences because they're very different from what we're seeing um, from the hospital data. We're going to talk about anosmia as a clinical feature of COVID. We're going to have a talk about the Roth test, which has been very controversial this week. We're going to talk about the information vacuum that we've all been living in for the last two months and anything else I think of on the way before we look at end of life care. So I'm sure like like myself, you've been talking to lots of people who clearly have coronavirus this week. We're building up this clinical picture. Lots of people with prolonged illness, lots of people with prolonged fever, even going on beyond two weeks. So we know that fever is one of the most common features cough and breathlessness, of course, myalgia, fatigue, all of these very common. But one thing that I found and many of you have been reporting is that lots of patients have been describing chest pain. Sometimes that seems to be something actually related to the the lungs, to the bronchi. Um, Sometimes there's a suggestion that that could be something more cardiac. There have been mutterings about increased rates of pericarditis in this group. 
I haven't seen any data on that. So this is anecdotal, but clearly something we should just be aware of. And then lots of people also reporting about abdominal pain, particularly upper abdominal pain, whether that's a continuation of the chest pain or originating directly from the GI system seems to be uncertain. We do know, of course, there is GI involvement around 10%, perhaps more of people will get diarrhea. Diarrhea can also be a prodrome. And as I referred someone for acute cholecystitis yesterday up to the hospital, one of the surgical team there was saying that they're seeing several presentations of people with abdominal pain that turn out to be COVID positive. Is this just an incidental finding of COVID in someone who has a primary GI complaint? That remains uncertain, just like so much of what we're dealing with at the moment. There's been a lot of discussion about anosmia this week as a clinical feature of COVID. And there's been reports of this over the past few weeks and studies have suggested that there there are reasonably high rates of it. So one large Chinese study suggested it could be up to 30%. And then this week, we had some data published from the COVID radar, which is a UK-based symptom tracker for the general population. And that's reported that in people who have tested positive for COVID-19, around 60% of them describe anosmia. So those figures seem quite impressive. But let's not forget, there's quite a lot of heterogeneity between the results of different studies in anosmia. And even if those figures do turn out to be truly representative, it's still not good enough to be a useful discriminator for disease. So a paper from the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine talking about anosmia found that in combination with fever, fatigue, persistent cough, diarrhea, abdominal pain and loss of appetite, that had a specificity for COVID-19 of 83% and a sensitivity of 55%. So you actually have to have a whole collection of all the classic features before you can be even relatively confident that this is COVID-19. And even then you're going to miss around half of cases. And of course, there's plenty of other causes of anosmia, both infective and non-infective. And as we see the trees blossom outside, of course, hay fever is on the rise, asthma is on the rise, anosmia could be linked to these. Now, no social media storms for proposed treatments of coronavirus this week. But we did have a social media storm yesterday about assessment of coronavirus and specifically about the Roth score. So many of you will be very familiar with the Roth score now. This is where you get a patient to count from 1 to 30. You see how far they can get and you time how long it is before they have to take a breath. And this has been reported as a predictor of people's SATs. Clearly, this would be very advantageous for us on telephone and video consultations. However, concerns have already been raised about this from Tricia Greenhowl, who works in Oxford at the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine. She highlighted the limitations of the Roth score and suggested alternative strategies we could use for assessment. Now, the Roth score is embedded in a number of local COVID-19 assessment pathways around the country, but Professor Greenhowl has become increasingly concerned after a number of reports of Um, situations where clinicians had used the Roth score for assessment and then patients have still become very unwell. So yesterday, she and the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine put out a very, very strong plea to not use this score. So what's the problem? Well, as they highlight in their report on the Roth score, there are no validated tests of assessing breathlessness using this Roth score 
um, over the phone. It's all based around a single study, and that single study did not look at primary care populations at all. And in that study of 93 hospitalised patients and 103 healthy volunteers, they found that the ability of the ROF score to identify low SATs, so SATs under 95%, was relatively limited. So it's got a sensitivity of 78% and a specificity of 71%. So already what you can see is we're going to miss a significant number of patients and we're going to misdiagnose a significant number as well. It comes back to when we think about a good rule out test, we need a really high sensitivity, much better than the ROF test provides. So what can we use instead? Well, I personally have lots of reservations about clinical scoring systems above and beyond simply using our clinical judgment. And whilst you may not have opened the latest BJGP that's popped through your door, there was a very interesting editorial discussing exactly this. So just to read the conclusion of the editorial, clinical scoring systems do have a role for use in primary care, but cannot replace clinical reasoning and judgment. They risk being overly burdensome on the clinician for limited additional benefit. A previous systematic review suggests that clinical algorithms are rarely superior to clinical judgment. And this is particularly relevant in primary care. Professor Greenhall's recommendation is to simply ask people about their breathing and how their breathing has changed. This makes a lot of sense to me. We might well be able to count their respiratory rate. We may be lucky enough to have their SATs. We've got our gut instinct as well. So years and years of clinical experience will help us decide whether this person is unwell. One of the other important clinical features that the Roth test is unable to help us with is this rapid deterioration that some people seem to have. So usually this happens in the second week, so sometime between day seven and 10, but those are medians. So we obviously have to keep an open mind and people can rapidly deteriorate within the space of a few hours. So from seeming fairly well to being very unwell extremely quickly. And this is because of a cytokine release syndrome or a cytokine storm. So the immune system goes into overdrive. You get this systemic hyper-inflammatory response and then respiratory failure, usually driven by ARDS, so acute respiratory distress syndrome, and then multiple other organ failure as well. So the main lesson that we need to learn from this in primary care is just about very careful safety netting. Explain to patients that they that there can be a rapid deterioration in that second week. And if they become very unwell, call an ambulance, get themselves to hospital. But then I've also been seeing lots of patients who have just had ongoing fever, ongoing low level symptoms, low grade fever. They might be a bit breathless. They might have a bit of a cough. They're not that unwell, but they're just not getting better. So a big question this week has been, do these patients have a low level secondary bacterial infection that's causing these persisting symptoms? And of course, therefore, would antibiotics be helpful? So we've spent years improving antibiotic prescribing, making them more targeted, not prescribing them for simple viral infections. But the nature of this coronavirus seems to drive secondary bacterial infection, particularly in the lungs. And we know that this is a significant cause of death for people who are hospitalised, but also there's a suspicion that this may be something we're seeing more on a low level in primary care. 
So there are some local guidelines out there, particularly the Barnet one that you might have seen. That's been circulated a lot around the country in the absence of perhaps our own local guidelines as of yet. And in that guideline, they suggest there's a strong role for antibiotics for preventing secondary bacterial infection in those who have moderate respiratory symptoms with COVID. Other guidelines I've seen have suggested that secondary bacterial infection is uncommon. I think what we can draw from this is no one really knows. So this week I've been trying to collate information from you guys around the country who have had probable coronaviruses yourselves, prolonged illness, and then had some antibiotics to see whether they have worked or not. So several of you have reported very rapid improvements, even within 24 hours, with resolution of both fever and other infective symptoms. Some of you have reported that it hasn't made any difference whatsoever. So there is still a lot of uncertainty here. My take on it is if we've got people who have got prolonged symptoms, they've had fever for two weeks already, then I'm probably going to err on the side of caution and give them some antibiotics. If this was any other kind of infection in any other kind of situation and someone was still febrile at two weeks, we'd probably be trying some antibiotics. Sure, we might like to get some investigations in the current context of things. That's very difficult. So empirical treatment may be the way forwards. Not everyone will need them. You might not prescribe them in everyone, but when you do prescribe them, don't feel guilty. I found it very helpful to know that locally to me, the majority of hospitalised patients are ending up on antibiotics. It's so hard for them to distinguish between bacterial and viral causes. And of course, they have all the tests that we don't. Now, the other big question on people's mind is, does the level of viral load that someone is exposed to correlate with the severity of illness? And I've been seeing a lot of chat, particularly on social media, saying that this is absolutely a fact. But the reality is that this is very far from fact. And indeed, data suggests that there may be no correlation at all. So I think there's no doubt if you are an ICU nurse and you are working with infected patients all day, every day, then there is a much higher chance that they are going to develop an infection because of the duration of exposure to the virus than someone like myself working in primary care, intermittently seeing possibly infected patients for a short period of time. Those ICU staff absolutely deserve the applause that was ringing out at eight o'clock last night. Moreover, they deserve the very best PPE that can be offered as well. But despite a number of very unfortunate high profile deaths amongst medics, particularly in the UK, a number of ENT specialists and abroad, a number of anaesthetists, data from infected patients, both from Italy and China, failed to find any obvious difference between symptoms and severity in patients with high viral load. If this is the case, then it would mean that SARS-CoV-2 would be quite different from influenza, MERS and SARS, all of which were found to have greater severity with greater viral load. Regardless, we still need to have appropriate PPE in primary care as the prevalence of the disease within the community increases. And of course, there'll be lots and lots of asymptomatic cases that we won't know about. It becomes increasingly important that we protect ourselves well at all times. That is, of course, especially true if you are working in one of these hot hubs that are popping up around the country. 
I have to say, initially, I was quite in favour of this concept, but my wife has argued me around and I've certainly mellowed that initial excitement. One of her colleagues describes them as a COVID funfair, which I think is probably an apt description. The big risk here, of course, is that we just create a focus for infection that's dangerous for staff and it's dangerous for any patient who goes for assessment there who doesn't already have coronavirus. So I think that the idea about managing these cases in the practice, maybe in some kind of pop-up medical centre in the car park, like many of us have been doing, is certainly preferable. We're more likely to know our patients. We're likely to need less face-to-face time and the risk is likely to be lower for the patient overall. The problem comes, of course, when the level of disease increases and the capacity for a practice to deal with the demands is overwhelmed, especially in the context of staff illness. Then in reality, there's little option to have anything other than a centralised area and pooled resources. Even then, hot hubs could reduce the risk for staff and patients alike. So I think the idea about drive-through assessments is very, very sensible. And of course, they should be seeing just a tiny proportion of the people that we're speaking to. The goal still has to be for both the patient's protection and our staff and our colleagues for us to try and do our very best to manage these patients on the phone with um, telephone calls, with video consultations, limiting the need for face-to-face contact where it's safe to do so. And there's a number of good resources out there for helping with telephone and video consultations. So we've got one on the Hot Topics website. There's a whole webinar on that. It's completely free. Please go and have a look at it. There's some good guidance in the BMJ and in the BJGP Life website, both of which are free to access as well. And then one of the most galling aspects of this pandemic, one of the most frustrating things for us is this information vacuum. And I've been a bit critical about local CCGs for not having produced more helpful guidance in a timely fashion and the lack of communication about why this is the case. It's just like day-to-day general practice, isn't it? It's the communication that's the really big thing. But I learned a new phrase this week, command and control. And this is the government and NHS strategy about how they control and disseminate information about the pandemic. This is why your colleagues who work in um, hospital ICUs are being told they're not allowed to talk to the media. They can't put posts on social media. This is why your friends and colleagues who work in CCGs may not have given you all the information about local pathways. And perhaps it's because I've spent the last 10 years in a job where I've been trying to find information and find what is useful. But I find this whole concept very, very difficult. I think if the government were open and honest about the ability to test the access to PPE, the real rates of infection, the accuracy of models. I think we would welcome that and it would make us feel much, much better. I can't understand why local hospitals wouldn't want the public to know that the ICUs are full. It's not about scaring people. It's about helping them understand why they need to keep doing the measures that have been imposed on them. And I, for one, 
would love to know what's going on in our hospitals a bit better. So what's the status on a daily basis? Where are we with ICU beds? Where are we with respiratory beds? How has the hospital refigured itself to deal with this disease in the local population? It would help primary care to plan. It would help them to adapt. And it would give me just a little bit of peace of mind, which is so important when it's in such short supply at the moment. So my plea to those in positions of authority is please keep talking to us. Please keep sharing. It's going to be helpful for us. It will help us manage this better. Now, in this last section, we're going to have a look at end of life care. And this is going to be one of the most important roles that we have over the next few weeks, I think. If you heard me talking about the Italian general practice experience a couple of weeks ago, then you'll know that much of the normal work that we do becomes quiet. And in fact, day-to-day practice can become much easier. But the big difference between us and Italy is that most of those patients at the end of life are admitted to hospital and managed within hospital. And that's definitely not going to be the case here. We've already seen many local guidelines put quite clear restrictions on who should go to hospital or not. And I think we understand this. It's not just about limited resources. It's about acknowledging that certain groups, particularly the very elderly, do very badly with this condition. And the reality is that they are very unlikely to ever make it off of a ventilator. These patients we're going to have to try and manage within the community. And if things do take a turn for the worse, we're going to have to help them at the end of life. Now, while the response from the RCGP has been a bit lacking in many areas. Their information on end-of-life care in COVID is actually very, very good. So I would definitely recommend having a look at the RCGP COVID-19 resource hub and the end-of-life section. It's got all of the key guidance and a number of quite helpful documents for pragmatic management in primary care. If you're not already in the thick of things, then you might have a little bit of time to be able to think about some of your highest risk patients and what their wishes around end of life might be. All of the palliative care organisations are encouraging us to try and have these discussions with patients now. And I think that's sensible, but I also think that it's quite a challenge. We don't want to be seeing these patients face to face right now. We're a bigger risk to them than anything. And doing this over the phone is complicated, especially when you're dealing with a very elderly population. Half of them can barely hear you down the phone. And our practice has been ringing with the sound of GPs desperately shouting down a telephone, trying to ask someone about, what would you like to happen if you die? No, you're not dying now, but do you want us to jump up and down on you if you do? Why would we be jumping up and down on you if you died? Well, because you've died. No, I wouldn't do that to you if you were alive. It's a difficult conversation at the best of times face to face. Locally, one of the palliative care experts had suggested that we consider sending out a warning shot text message to think about their own death. And I have to say, I find this idea very, very uncomfortable. I suspect a number of you will probably feel the same way too. Ultimately, there's no easy solutions here. And it just further highlights that as a nation, we really, really need to talk about death much more, much earlier. Let's not wait for a pandemic to be having these conversations. So there's a very good reference document on the RCGP website that's been put together by the RCGP, as well as a number of other national palliative care bodies. 
and it contains pretty much everything that we need to know from having discussions about end of life through to symptom management and information about non-drug and drug options for all the key symptoms that we might need to manage in a coronavirus death. So breathlessness, pyrexia, delirium, possibly pain medication as well. There's quite a neat little picture on there, a diagram showing how people can position themselves to aid their breathing when they're really, really struggling, both when they're sitting, but also when they're lying down as well, which I thought was pretty neat. It also has information about the process of issuing death certification and verifying death. Coronavirus can be a cause of death. If it is, you don't have to see the body after death for cremation paperwork, except where they haven't been seen by a doctor in the preceding 28 days. While it is useful as a reference document, what it doesn't do is it doesn't really provide us with good medical alternatives when syringe drivers or subcut treatment is not an option. So this may become a big issue for us because resources are already stretched in palliative care teams, but a CCG may end up seeing hundreds of extra deaths every single day from coronavirus. We're all coming to the realisation that there aren't that many syringe drivers that will be available and there's not enough district nurses or palliative care community teams to be able to deliver that level of care in patients' homes. So we're going to have to try and fill that void, but even that may not be enough. So what would be really handy would be pragmatic guidance on what alternative options there are that don't involve needles, that maybe patients themselves or their family members could administer, or that we could provide in the absence of a syringe driver. In this RCGP resource hub, under the end of life care section, you will find two very useful documents in the external resources tab. So the first one is from Cambridge and Peterborough CCG, and this provides us with a pragmatic strategy on helping severely distressed COVID patients, and it recommends a combination of morphine, midazolam and levomepromazine, which will rapidly help people feel much better. It's worth remembering if we're giving subcut medications, it will take at least 20 minutes before patients will start realising the effects of those. So we've got to give it a little bit of time before we repeat it and escalate the dose. That document also has a page for the family members or carers of that dying patient, which has some very clear information about how they can help provide subcutaneous treatment and the doses that they should be using. And I think hands down the most useful document that I've seen all week has come from a website called futureplanning.org.uk. It's also available on this resource hub from the RCGP and it provides us with alternatives to syringe drivers or subcut treatments. So both for us as health professionals, but also options that carers could administer as well. So, for example, instead of using morphine in a syringe driver, you could use a fentanyl patch or you could even use morphine modified release tablets, which are meant for oral, but use them PR instead. It turns out that they're very well absorbed rectally. 
Opiates are, of course, the preferred first line option for breathlessness. But if people are still struggling, then there are other options as well. So you might typically use midazolam to help reduce the anxiety associated with breathlessness. But that's normally going to go in a syringe driver. When that's not possible, there is a buckle option that you could use. And if that's not available, then a good alternative would be a sublingual lorazepam or you could even use a diazepam enema, or you could use levomepromazine. And whilst this needs to be either injected or orally ingested, you could crush the tablet mixed with a small amount of water and the patient may be able to manage that. Respiratory secretions, you could try a hyacinth patch and there's a range of other recommendations on there. So that's definitely worth a look. I think that's going to be a key document in the next few weeks. So futureplanning.org.uk. No one ever said this was going to be easy, but for many of us, the reality is sinking in. There are times where it will feel like there is only darkness. Right now, you may be listening to this struggling with your breathing, or you may be desperately wishing you could hold that loved one who's in hospital and in isolation. You might be at work with your hand hovering over the telephone, just preparing yourself for that conversation with a relative, telling them that their loved one is not going to make it through this. But in all this darkness, remember there is light. And that's because you care. It's because your colleagues care. I know we will do the very best we can to support each other and together we will get through this. I know it's because we will do the very best that we can to support our patients and we will save their lives. And when we cannot, we will make sure that their death is the best that it can be. And around the country, the public know that. They appreciate you for it. They respect you for it and they applaud you for it. With that in mind, I'm going to leave you with a final thought for today. Now, I am, as one of my patients has pointed out before, not that cultured, but one of my very good friends and colleagues, Andrew Schumann, has been keeping morale high in the practice with a daily poem. And this is one that seems apt at the moment. This is by Raymond Carver. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? to call myself beloved and to feel myself beloved on the earth. Keep up the good work, everyone. You're doing a great job out there. So the podcast will be back in two weeks. Next week, keep a lookout on the mbmedical.com website for that free on-demand webinar for assessment and management of COVID-19 in the community. And as ever, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can email us hottopics at mbmedical.com. Please keep sharing your experiences with us. Tell us those successes. Tell us those failures. And above all, stay safe. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.